Why are these times perilous? Is it because of persecution? Is it because of ISIS is taking over the world? Is it because of the tribulation period? No. He says that we will be in peril because men will be philautos, lovers of self. Hey everyone, this week we're taking a break from our series, Exposing the Root of All Sin. If you joined us last week, you heard us announce that our 2021 annual conference theme is Babel, the Tower is nearly complete. And we wanted to give you a taste of what it's like to hear God's word preached at this event. We'll be playing a message by Pastor Steve Gallagher from our 2015 conference. We trust that you'll be encouraged to live passionately for the Lord in these dark times and maybe even inspired to join us this April in Northern Kentucky. That's what's coming up on this week's episode of Purity for Life. As we approach the coming of the Lord Jesus, we know that he is actively sanctifying and preparing his church to spend eternity with him as his bride. And yet, at the same time, there is the frightening reality of a great apostasy where many people who claim to be Christians are simply false professors. Satan is a largely unseen enemy, and he uses the currents of our culture to entice professing Christians to live for themselves rather than God and others. The culture's widespread pursuit of pleasure and entertainment deafens believers to the call of discipleship and the way of self-denial. And popular world philosophies seek to dominate our thinking rather than them being shaped by the pure word of God. These truly are perilous times, and we all need to know how to go through in the power of Jesus Christ. Returning to our first love. Love defines Christianity. If there is no love, there is no Christianity. That's all there is to it. Love defines it. But the problem is that It's a term in the English language that we have watered down to the point of meaninglessness. We use it to describe our affections for anything from a baseball team to the color of a dress. And so it's lost its meaning. And let me say it this way. The Greek term agape is a very concise, uh, powerful term even. And it doesn't translate well into the word love. But agape describes a passion and a devotion to someone or something. That's what agape is. It's a, um, what's the term? I want to say passionate word. But it's a strong, vigorous word. And Jesus said the greatest commandment is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. In other words, He should become the passion of our life and He should have the devotion of our heart. 
And, of course, the second commandment is like it, that we should love others as we already love ourselves. Love for God and others is the foundation of Christianity. If that dissipates, you have nothing left but a hollowed-out shell and an empty pretense. All right, now, the title of my message is Perilous Times. And I was talking to Brother Dave Leopold. He's here somewhere. Uh, Where are you, Dave? There you are. Um, We were talking last night, and you would have to know Dave. He's a mellow, loving brother. He doesn't preach the same kind of way that I do, but he said to me last night, he said, you know, I'm just, I feel it inside me. He's been a faith home minister for 30-some years or something. And for him to say this to me is, you know, he doesn't exaggerate things. But he said, I feel it inside me that we are getting to a crisis point, and it is very serious. It's very serious. And I told him, well, I'm going to be bringing a strong word in the morning. He said, I'm glad to hear that. Because we desperately need to be shaken into reality. Perilous times. Now that, of course, comes from 2 Timothy 3, and that's where I'm going to be preaching out of this morning. Paul said, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Paul tells us that we need to know this. We need to wrap our minds around this fact. We need to have our eyes fully opened up to the great danger we are in. Now this word perilous is only used one other time in the New Testament, and that is in Matthew 8, 28. And it's describing the story of when Jesus went across the Sea of Galilee and the two demoniacs were living up there in the tombs. And it says of those men... They were so extremely violent, that's the word right there, extremely violent, that no one could pass by that way. Now, imagine this. You're a merchant, you lived 2,000 years ago, and you've got to go from Jerusalem up to Damascus, and you've got to go along the eastern seashore of the Sea of Galilee. You've got to walk right by those caves, and you know that these two men are up there who are full of the devil, full of darkness, full of evil, and they have a long history reputation for savagely beating people. But you've got to walk right underneath those caves where they live. Now think about it. I don't know if we can get our minds around it, but just try to imagine walking along that road knowing they're right there and could come running down upon you at any moment. You'd be terrified. Paul is saying that is how we should be feeling in these end times because they're a time of great peril. But the truth is, we don't feel that way. We're so nonchalant and laid back and so easygoing. I mean, 
we look around and all is well. God is blessing, prosperity is flowing. We don't feel the danger because we are in a false peace that is about to come to an end. How does our love grow cold? That's what I want to talk about this morning. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to take one Greek term and I'm going to build my whole message around that. And that Greek term is the word philautos. It's only used this one time in the New Testament. Let's look at our passage again. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Why are these times perilous? Is it because of persecution? Is it because of ISIS is taking over the world? Is it because of the tribulation period? No. He says that we will be in peril because men will be philautos. Lovers of self. And what exactly does that mean? It means that you will be more devoted to yourself and more passionate about your interests than anything else in life. And Paul mentions this term first because it is the root of everything that follows. And he just like, let's get the setting here. He is in a dungeon in Rome awaiting execution. This is his last letter he's writing to his beloved Timothy. He's just, you know, giving him instructions of how to deal with stuff. And, and all of a sudden, a spirit of prophecy comes on him. The Holy Spirit opens his eyes and gives him a sight of the end times church. And he must have just been staggered by it. And the first thing he sees that stands out is that the predominant spirit in the end times church is one of not selflessness, not giving, not laying down their lives for others, not sacrifice, but self-love. So he unleashes this torrent of terms. You know, all these different ways that self-love can manifest itself. And there's at least 18 characteristics of the apostasy listed in this passage. This passage is a commentary on the statement Jesus made. Because lawlessness will increase the love of many, the majority is what that word means in the Greek. The, the love of the majority, and it's there also, the context is professing Christians. The love of the majority of Christians will grow cold. Now, rather than read this passage, let me offer a multifaceted definition of philautos, Okay of self-love. Philautos is the determination to put one's own personal desires before the needs and desires of others. Philautos is a love for prosperity and all that it gives a person. 
Philautos is concerned with oneself, even if it comes at the expense of others. Philautos sees itself as more important than anyone else. Philautos is a grasping, demanding lust for pleasure and entertainment. Philautos is so taken up with itself that it leaves little room to love God and others. Philautos can put on a facade of godliness, but it puts up a wall against the probing conviction of the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, Philautos must contrive a form of Christianity that will fit within self's demands. Is that the American church or isn't it? It's the ruling spirit in the American church. And you know, so long as you're primarily devoted to self, you will never have a love for others or God. You can say it, you can sing songs about it, but there's no reality to it. You're only fooling yourself. Everything, when you're in Philautos, goes through the filter of the three questions of Philautos. What's in it for me? How does it affect my life? And what's it going to cost me? And unfortunately, that me-first attitude is a fixture in the American church. Now, you know, I don't want to try to preach on 18 terms. We just get lost in the details. So I'm going to break it down to three of the things that Paul mentions here, what I believe are the three important things in this passage. And you understand, this is only uh, one of the passages describing the apostate church. There's several others. 2 Peter 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, Matthew 24. They're all describing the same phenomenon that's going on. And if you ever get those passages and get over them and pray over them and really look at what is being expressed about the end times church and combine, uh, compare terms with terms and look at all the different facets of it. In other words, spend a few hundred hours studying those passages. Your eyes will be opened. And you will see the reality of what's happening in our day. If you would get into the commentaries that were written 150 years ago, long before uh, the spirit of self-love pervaded the church and overtook it, if you could spend hours every day focused in thinking and and, uh, reading and studying those commentaries of those men of God of yesteryear, And get in the the atmosphere of what those men lived in. Your eyes would be open to what we are facing this day. All right, so I want to get this down to three points. The first one is this. The last days will be perilous because there will be little love for others. And you see it in verse 3 here. The very first term is unloving. You know, in other words, these people, these professing Christians will be nice people, no doubt, morally good, stand against abortion, stand against homosexual marriage, whatever, take all, you know, believe all the orthodox teachings of the church and all the historic uh, beliefs, adhere to them, but no love. But really, when you think about it, dear ones, 
How is it possible for a human being who is inherently self-centered to really be concerned about anyone's interests but their own? You know, that's just the reality. Mankind is self-centered. It's just the way we all are. And I thought about how to talk about this point, and I decided I'm just going to take it out of my own story. So bear with me for a couple of minutes, and I'll just start off by saying, and I mean what I say, honestly mean it, that I, there's probably no one in this room today that is as self-centered as I was. Um, I remember when I was a boy... My mom told me one time that I was self-centered, and I didn't even know what the word meant. You know, I didn't know what she was saying, but I figured it must be good because she said, uh, you know, anytime she said something with a switch in her hand, I always took it as a compliment. <laughs> but, um, you know, I spent the next 25 years living that way. That was my life. And by the end of that stretch... I was so full of myself that I had no room in my heart or life for anyone, not even my wife. That's where that takes you. And many of you know that very well for your own, from your own experiences. So how did God create this ministry out of such a wreck of a human being? I wish you guys could have been there yesterday at Pure Life Ministries. We always have a half day of prayer. Well, we do it once a month, but we always do it right before the conference every year. And God poured out his love in that place in such a tremendous way. I mean, we, had to, we just stopped everything and spent like, I don't know, 40 minutes or something just loving each other and the presence of God fell the the love of God was poured out in our hearts for each other people were hugging and crying and telling each other how much they appreciate each other I wish you all could have been there and we could do that today but Sean won't let us you know disrupt the schedule <laughs> so we can't do that but it was just tremendous how did that atmosphere that just predominates Pure Life Ministries. I wish you could be around the staff and just hear them working together and the joy that's at, at the ministry and, and um, how much these guys humble themselves with each other and prefer each other over themselves. Where did that come from? Not from my life. I was the worst, right? I was the word. It didn't come from my life. I'm not some great guy. I was a jerk. God has his ways. You know, most of you realize that I was a cop in Los Angeles when God uh, rescued me from my sin and called me into ministry. And I left the department, and it was very difficult to make that decision, to walk away from that job. It was very hard. 
But God's call was on my life. Kathy and I both agreed and went to Bible school. When I was in Bible school, the Lord, um, you know, after much seeking and praying about what God wanted me to do with my life, He gave me a sight of ministering to men in a, um, a term that was absolutely unheard of in the 80s. Not drug addiction. Sex addiction. No one ever even knew about those concepts back then. They were just starting to become known a little bit. Not at all in the church. And, you know, when God laid that burden on my heart to start this ministry, it was exciting at first, but he didn't mention how hard it was going to be. <laughs> Starting a ministry to sex addicts. And, you know, right away, God starts opening doors for me to share my story on national television. So I did, and that was not easy back in the 80s. It, sex was still a shameful thing back then. And to go on national television and tell everyone that I was a pervert, and everyone that knew me was going to find out about my secret life, it was hard. But that was as nothing as to moving out to Kentucky and opening our home to sex addicts. Those first few years, my goodness, wow, was that ever hard. Is Mike Jones in here? Raise your, arm, your hand. Way back there, Mike Jones worked with us back in the early 90s, a couple years before Jeff and Rose came even. They know, or he knows, how hard it was. I mean, we were so dirt poor. I can remember the four of us, big event we would have like once a month or something, Go up to Cincinnati to the Goodwill stores. <laughs> Our specialized clothier. <laughs> That's how things were back in those days. And the community, man, when word got out that we were in Grant County, a little south of here, I'm telling you, those people hated us. They lied about us. They told the most ridiculous stories that would go around and people would just accept them as true. They tried running us out of the county. I'm trying to make a point. It was hard. It was a very hard ministry to start. But Kathy and I never even thought about it as hardship. I, Jeff and Rose, same thing. It wasn't like, you know, we were constantly every day, you know, oh, man, should we, maybe we should just, you know, cash it in and just go back home and do life or something. It, those thoughts never even occurred to us. God told us to do it and we just did it. And it's not even to any credit of our own. Please understand, I'm not trying to feel sorry for myself and I'm not trying to tell you what great people we were. It's not that. It's just that... God told us to do it, and we were just following through with what he laid out for us. And it didn't occur to us to quit or anything. Let me, let me just get it off myself here. Let me explain it this way. How many mothers are in the crowd? Bunch of you. All right. Now, there's no way I'm going to let you do this, but I would love to have one of you come up and talk about what it was like raising a child. I mean, think about the beginning of the thing. 
screaming pain. And then every night, you just start going to sleep. And that baby just starts screaming again, you know, and got to nurse it, got to clean it up. And you go back to bed, and then it starts up again for some other reason. And then you get to the terrible twos. I mean, sometimes I have to wonder, what's the point of it all? (laughs) But, you know, you mothers, you never think in terms of, you know, maybe I ought to put this kid up for adoption. You know, this is really getting kind (laughs) of... You don't think that way. You just do what you got to do. Why? Because you love that baby and because it's your, it's your responsibility to take care of that child. And so you're in it for life. You know, the rest of your life you'll spend watching over that child. Let me put it in a biblical context. Hebrews said that, says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Think about what Jesus Christ went through the last 18 hours of his life, ending up just tortured to death on that cross. But he didn't even think of it in a certain way. Because what he saw was on the other side of that cross that he was purchasing a bride who he would be able to enjoy forever and ever and ever. So the cost was not even an issue. You know, dear ones, every one of you has a call of God on your life. But so many people are just like, "Eh, but what's it going to cost me? What's God going to ask of me? (laughs) That's not the way to even think. You know, if you understood the joy, you mothers, you understand the joy of looking at that child. And you don't even see the sacrifice. Is that true or not? Okay, I didn't get a real good response on that one. (laughs) Well, you don't think about it so much, you know. How do you muster up love for the unlovable? I'm telling you, in the natural... I'm more self-centered than any of you in the natural. I don't have that in me. It's just not there. How do you do it? I love people, but how can it be? You can't do it. That's the thing. You don't have it in you either. You do not have the capacity to love people like God loves them with agape love. You can have nice little feelings. You can do some things for people. You can be unselfish. But ultimately, you're looking for something for self. 
But if you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, if you have truly been converted, born again, filled with the Holy Ghost, then you have this being who his very essence is agape. It's not just that he's kind of loving or something. It's the essence of him. He is a, he's in a passion. He's completely and utterly devoted to people. He lives in you. And all he wants to do is live out his life, his love through you to other people. But when self is on the throne, every sacrifice is a major inconvenience. Everything you do for others is ultimately with the idea of getting something for self. You'll end up even to the point where you're seeing yourself as doing God some great favor. And you end up living with these three questions. What's in it for me? How does it affect my life? What's this going to cost me? Dear ones, if you, if I could only get it across to you, the joy, the joy of being used by God. I don't mean up here preaching. This is not it. It's the daily interaction it's, where's Nate at? Sitting down with Nate and hearing him pour his heart out to me and just being there for him. Fellowshipping with Jeff and Rose. We've been through so many wars and battles together and the deep fellowship that the four of us have. And just all the other stuff about the life of giving of yourself. Letting God live out his love for through you. He's got a plan for you. Your responsibility is to seek him until you find out what that plan is and to keep seeking him. Asking, seeking, knocking at the door of heaven until you get a clear word from God. He has a plan, a specific thing he wants you to do, specific people he wants to meet their needs through your life. Not just, you know, here and there where you can kind of do some nice little thing on your terms. When it's convenient, when you're in control, no, he wants to be in control. If you want your heart to be in a passion, be devoted to people, you've got to start by finding God's will. And if you'll do that, I'm telling you, his love will overflow from your life. And then you'll really know what joy is. All right, number two. The last days will be perilous because there will be little love for God. 
In verse 4, you see the phrase, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. This is the word philodoni, lovers of pleasure. It's just one more foul offshoot of philautos, the love of self. It's a mindset that's more carnal than spiritual, more earthly than heavenly, more self-pleasing than God-pleasing. So here's Paul sitting in that dungeon. And he gets this vision, the sight of the end times church. He looks around and he sees nothing but sacrifice. People laying their lives down, being drug off to the Colosseum or whatever. Being set on fire in the gardens of Nero. He sees selflessness and love overflowing from his brothers in this prison. But then he gets this vision of the end times church. And he sees people who are more devoted to and passionate about pleasure and entertainment than the things of God. Now it goes without saying that hedonism is the mindset of the world, right? But if pleasure is what life is all about for you, how is your life any different? In my book here, which I'll mention, did I tell you it was 50% off out there? <laughs> that it's 10 times as good as anything Dave Ravenhill's ever written? In my spectacular book here, I bring out what it means to be a saint from the Word of God, not from, you know, some conjecture or some idea or something that I came up with, just using um, words like I'm looking at now, Greek words, what they really mean. The word saint, I think I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because it won't be true. Many of you will raise your hands and you're really not there. You haven't crossed the line yet. But the word saint in the Greek is hagios. It's the same word as Holy Spirit. It means a holy one. It means, literally the word means, to be set apart. That's what it means to be a believer. To be set apart. The church, the term for church in the Greek is ecclesia. That literally means called out ones. So you have people who are called out of the world as a body, corporate, something is completely different between them and the world. Well, I don't believe in abortion. I stand against homosexual marriage. Brother, you better have more going on inside of you than a moral conviction. Set apart, separate from this world system. All right, now, you know, the reality in America is we're surrounded by a thousand forms of pleasure and entertainment. How do we live a separated life in American culture? How can we show more devotion to God than pleasure? How do we know what we can do and what we can't do? Well, the first thing I'm going to say 
and I want to say this very strongly, is that we have got to fall in love with God and make Him the devotion of our lives. There's a reason they call it devotions. You know, that you set aside the first part of your day to fellowship with God. Now, I'm going to leave that at that because Brother Dave is going to speak on that later. Uh, so I'm not going to say anything else about that, but that is huge. But secondly, we have to impose limits on ourselves. Brother Adam, you listening to me back there? <laughs> He's a guy who really lives it. Cop in Atlanta. And really lives a set-apart life. He and Shelley. Dear, dear friends. <clears throat> You've got to be able to say no to your flesh. If you're constantly saying yes to your flesh, what does that make you? You know, in the parable of the sower and the seed, Jesus used seed that fell among the thorns as a way to illustrate people who would allow the word of God to become choked out by the pleasures of life. Now, the picture here Jesus is using is just imagine, you, you want to um, grow a tomato plant. So you take your little plant you got from Walmart, and you go out back, and you find the patch that's got the most weeds in it, and you stick it right in the middle. Right? How long is that plant going to last? What's going to come out of that plant? It's Obviously, the soil is being depleted, and, and all the nutrients are going into the weeds, and there's not going to be anything left for the plant. So if it does survive, there's not going to be any fruit on it. And Jesus is saying, if you fill your life with pleasure and entertainment, that's what you're going to be like. Your spiritual life is going to die. And Paul made the same point when he said that the Christian women who were given over to wanton pleasure were dead even while they lived. All right, now let me just get it down to practical terms. I'll, I'll just take television as an example because it's one of the main things that uh, affects Christians in our day. Next month will be 30 years since Kathy and I have had network television in our home. And I am, again, by nature, the kind of guy that would just sit and watch television for hours, if I could. I mean, I'm just, I'm just that kind of guy. I just am, you know, if I want to relax, that's what I would want to do, is just watch television. But, you know, we have had to put limits on our lives. And the way Kathy and I did it is we have a television, but we have a DVD player. So we purchase DVDs that we feel like we can watch. And what that does, I'm trying to be practical here for a second, okay? What that does for us is we can control what we watch. We can control how long the TV is on and when we're going to watch stuff. So maybe tonight we, well, no, tonight we'll be here. Uh, 
Unless you don't mind me slipping out for a while. I've heard Brother uh, Jeff preach a few times, and no, just kidding. <laughs> oh, man. How do I get out of this? <laughs> Let's say next Tuesday night, <laughs> we decide we want to watch something. So we have a documentary, National Geographic documentary. I happen to have one in my somewhere uh, on the FBI. So we, we are going to watch television on Tuesday night, and we're going to watch this documentary. And you know what? There's no, there's no uh, commercials full of sex and filth and worldliness. There's none of that. It's just a straightforward documentary that we've already checked out beforehand. Let's say we want to watch a movie. So we go into IMD, IMDB, uh, on the internet, and they have parental guides, you know, and we find out if there's any language or violence. Well, violence is okay, yeah. you know. <laughs> I am an ex-cop, you know, it's just kind of in me. But no sex. Jeff's telling me. <laughs> the violence I would watch is from a movie back in the 40s, okay? It's pretty tame. <laughs> All right, I better move on. In other words, God is not demanding that you live a life where you can't have a little bit of pleasure and entertainment. He's not unrealistic or unreasonable, you know. He doesn't mind that. Actually, he loves to give his children blessings. If we would just let him instead of always insisting on blessing ourselves. But anyway, he doesn't mind that within reasonable limits and you know being careful acting like we care acting like we're more devoted to him than this world this is the sort of stuff you do when the reality of your life is that you truly are more devoted to God and the things of God than you are to pleasure. Listen, Pastor Steve isn't making this up. It's in your Bible, isn't it? Is it there? Three of you have read that passage. All right, my third point. This one didn't go over so good. I'll try it here. The last days will be perilous because there will be little love for truth. All right, now let me put on my teacher hat for a second. You could do what's in my Bible. If you could see my Bible, you, you can't. Um, but on verse 10 of chapter 3, I have a parenthesis. And then the closing parenthesis is on chapter 4, verse 2. And the reason for that, let me paint the picture again. Paul, sitting in that dungeon, gets this word from the Lord about the end times church, and he's frantically trying to write it all down. And then he gets to verse 10, 
and suddenly thinks, oh, wait a minute, you know, I've got to make sure that Timothy understands the importance of staying true to the Word of God. So he takes a rabbit trail for the rest of the chapter, and he talks about the Word of God. And then in chapter 4, verse 3, it's like, oh yeah, there's one more thing I need to tell you about the end times church. Okay, so let's read this, chapter 3, verse 6. All right? For among them there are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all when the Lord comes back, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. Chapter 4, verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. The same false teachers that are taking advantage of these women in chapter 3 are the same ones who are telling people what they want to hear in chapter 4. It's the same group of men. They're household names in the evangelical church. Right now, the men that Paul talked about, that Jesus talked about, that Peter talked about, that I'm going to touch on here. There's names to these men. You know these names. They didn't. But they saw the spirit they were in. Now let me paint the picture. You have this vast multitude. And moving through this crowd, it says amongst them. Amongst that mass multitude of the end times church, you have these false teachers moving through them, kind of like a burglar casing a neighborhood. What kind of house is he looking for? The house with the fence up front and the uh, beware of dog sign out front? No, that's not the house he's looking for. He's looking for houses that have easy access. And that's what the enemy does. He's always looking for an in for, with people who are open to the voice of the world. So these men, full of phalautos, peddling a gospel that's based in phalautos, are moving through the crowds looking for victims. Well, how do they enter into households? It's through the media, isn't it? It's through the media. Four different times in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus stopped what he was saying and warned us, you and me, this is who he's talking to, the believers of the end times, warned us not to be deceived. Four times. 
And in his second epistle, Peter said that many would follow the sensuality of these false teachers. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. Have we seen that in our day? And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. That's what Peter says about them. Same men, same dynamic. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, where Paul is talking about the great apostasy and the Antichrist, he says that these people... The massive multitude again will be deceived because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. You know, dear ones, if you love the truth, and when I'm talking about truth, I'm not talking about historical Christian doctrine. I'm talking about the truth of what is going on inside you. I'm talking about the truth of the reality of your life with God. I'm talking about the truth of the way you live your daily life. The things that are in your heart. The things that you do when no one's watching. If you embrace the truth that the Holy Spirit brings to you, you won't be deceived. You'll be discerning. But if you don't have a passion for truth, you're going to be wide open like that house in the neighborhood that doesn't have a fence, doesn't have a guard dog, easy access for a burglar. That's going to be you. That probably is many of you right now. Paul said... It's going to be a dangerous time because deception will be prevalent. But it's amazing to me. It is amazing to me how little concern Christians have about being deceived. You know why we're not concerned? It's because we are arrogant. We're just arrogant. We think we got it all down. It's our prosperity that's made us arrogant. It's deceived us into thinking we're somewhere we're not. What's in it for me? How does this affect my life? What's this going to cost me? That's all I want to know. And you go through life those three questions determining everything that you do practically. All right, now I'm going to wrap it up here. And I want to do it this way. I want to take you back in history for a second. I want to tell you something you probably know. That for, from time immemorial... It was common belief within the church or outside the church, whatever. It was just common belief amongst mankind that the earth was the center of the solar system. And it wasn't until the 1600s when Galileo came along and 
disputed that and started trying to prove to people, no, the sun is the center. We're revolving around it. It's not revolving around the earth. And he got persecuted by the Catholic Church, by the way, for that. But, you know, now we take it as common knowledge. We understand what's what. But people didn't understand it back then. The common belief amongst American Christians, we don't ever say this. It's just the reality of what we live in. The common belief is that we are the center and that God, we allow Him to revolve around our lives. We allow Him to take part in our lives as long as we are in control. We need a revolution in our thinking. And I'm saying we. It probably seems to you like I'm pointing the finger at you or many of you or something. No, I'm saying me and us as American Christians. I know that I am deceived. I know I'm deceived. To some degree. It's like you can't live in America and not be under the, the deceptive pall that rests on this country. We are just deceived by our riches. And we think we got it all figured out and we don't. You know, there are people in here who are absolutely addicted to pleasure. And you keep going from easy answer to easy answer. Let me get a book. That'll cost me 15 bucks. Let me get in a support group. I hate the support group. I hate to give up a Tuesday night every week, Saturday morning, but, you know, maybe I'll get freedom there. Let me go start seeing a psychologist. Always looking for the easy answers. You need a revolution in your life. Do you think you're going to continue being addicted to pleasure but cut out the sexual sin part of it? Do you really believe that? That's what the Pure Life Ministries Live-In program is all about. Is completely changing, transforming a man's life and heart. How many of you men in here have been through it and have... Seeing God do that in your life. Many. Change begins by acknowledging that there's a problem. If you're satisfied and you think you're in good shape with God, and maybe you are, I don't know. Okay, you know, then there's, I guess, nothing to change. But if you see that something needs to change, then you have to get honest with yourself. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. And then you need to repent. 
I'm going to ask, uh, why don't you guys come up, Jeff. Um, <laughs> yesterday in the prayer time, I can't remember who I was sharing this with. I think it was, oh, maybe it was Dave. Uh, I just had this, these, kind of this revelation about our thinking. And I came up with this term dropped in my mind, cognitive, super cognitive moments, or super cognitive mode. You know, we go through life on autopilot. And on autopilot, you don't really think at a deep level, and you just kind of let life come at you, and, and so you get, sometimes you get overwhelmed with temptation, and because you're not in your right mind, you, you cave in, you cave in, you cave in, you cave in, and so on. Or you give over to watching more TV than you should, because you're in that auto mode where you're not really thinking and you don't really want to think. But there are moments that I'm going to call super cognitive moments. When your, your will, your mind, and your heart are one. You're fully aware. This is a super cognitive moment right now. You're engaged. Well, a few of you are kind of drifting, but <laughs> mostly you're engaged. And... The Bible has a term, kairos, it's opportunity. That's when the Holy Spirit has the opportunity to connect with your mind and with your heart and your will, all three. Too many times you've made decisions when you're in autopilot and you're not really connected with the Lord and then you just... It just goes nowhere. But when you are in that moment, when the Holy Spirit can reach into your heart and you can make a decision and a commitment for God, that's when life change happens. Many of you, I, listen, I know there's many people in here who are really walking with the Lord. Okay, I'm not trying to get you up here. I don't care, really, I don't care if, if this is all about one person. I'm not looking for some big mad rush up here or something. It doesn't give me some ego boost or something. But I know that God gave me this message. And I know that He gave it to me because there's someone in here who needs to make new commitments to the Lord. And so you guys go ahead and I'm going to lead you in a prayer in just a moment. Go ahead and sing a song. And let's all stand up. If the Lord is speaking to your heart, I want you to come up here now. Now's your opportunity. Don't blow it off because you're not going to have this later. Now's your opportunity to get a fresh start with God. I hope that this message was a blessing to you and a challenge in your relationship with God because we all have ways that we can grow. Maybe for you it means establishing a set time to fellowship with God and His Word each morning. Maybe it means choosing to prayerfully and sacrificially love the people in your sphere of influence. Or maybe it means giving up something that you know is self-indulgent. Whatever it is, 
May Jesus have his way with you and help you obey his spirit. We know that the Lord loves us and he is faithful. As we seek him, he will work in us what pleases him and he will keep us from the enemy of this world which wages war against our souls. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next week as we continue our series exposing the root of all sin on Purity for Life. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.